0: Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for its power, Lord. God, I'm grateful that despite my own inefficiencies, despite my own flesh, Lord, that your word speaks to us, it shows us how we should live, it transforms each and every one of our lives. And God, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit today. So We're going to learn about the work of the Spirit in the life of the church We're thankful for your spirit and how it grows and how it changes each and every one of us. So God, would you be faithful to do that here this morning? Would you open our hearts to the message that you have for us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When I was a freshman in college, I went to orientation. I had um, to go up to Iowa to where the college was with my parents. I was very anxious to meet my roommate. I wanted to see... Who is this guy? I only had one roommate my freshman year. I wanted to see who the guy was that I was going to be, you know, sleeping next to and doing all this stuff with, and I've been told that a good roommate would make your college experience well, and a bad roommate would really ruin it for um, the whole year. So I got there, and I saw that my roommate was a guy named Daniel, and I'd never um, had heard of this guy before. I wasn't really familiar with the people up at the college, there's a problem when I got there, Daniel wasn't there, and I put my stuff in there. My parents kind of wanted to meet my roommate too, but that whole first day of orientation, Daniel didn't show up. So the second day came, and we waited, and we're looking to see, you know, is Daniel going to show up? And he wasn't there either, so my parents actually had to leave. Saturday came, and classes started on Monday, and you know, they're doing all these meet the professors and the staff, and... Make sure they've got all your information and all these like kind of community building exercises and games and everything. And he's missing out on all this and you're only supposed to be at orientation. And yet he still wasn't there. So finally Sunday came and I started to think maybe Daniel is not going to show up. So I went and I had to find a church, you know, because this was a new area. I went to church, went to small groups that night. There was still no Daniel. I finally came back to my room at 9:30 at night. And at this point I'm just convinced that Daniel doesn't exist. That there's been some kind of a mistake, that there's no person named Daniel. And I walk into my room and there's a guy laying on the bed next to mine, and I'm like, "Who are you?" He said, "I'm Daniel." I said, "No, you're not. Daniel doesn't exist." And he kind of gave me a funny puzzled look, and he'd waited till pretty much the last minute to come for college. As we look at our text this morning in Acts chapter 2, the disciples have been waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They've been waiting for the Spirit to come. You see, this has actually been an expectation throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels even, that after Christ leaves, there's going to be this Spirit that comes, and He's going to be with the church In fact, in John 16, and we'll get to this text in a few moments, Christ says, it's actually better for your sake that I leave so that the spirit of truth can come and he can guide you into all truth. He'll be your comforter. And so the disciples have been waiting. And as we saw last week, while they're waiting, they're doing two things. They're preparing, making decisions, gathering together, and they're praying. But as you look at what Christ says to the disciples, they're not sure when the Holy Spirit is going to come. They're not even sure really what to expect. Imagine being a disciple and wondering, what is this Holy Spirit going to be like? How is he going to help us? Well, as we'll see in our text this morning, it's quite a dramatic display. It's quite the show that the Holy Spirit puts on, isn't it, that all these people are talking about in the region. And so in our text this morning, it's only 13 verses, and it's really focused around this one event. But what I want us to do is look at the work of the Spirit and the life of the church. And as we do that, we're going to do something a little different. As we go throughout the text, we're going to look at three different rabbit trails, but they're planned rabbit trails. So I don't know if they're a rabbit trail, if it's planned or not. We want to look deeply at this ministry of the Spirit as it comes up in the text, but I do want to take a few moments as we look at what the Holy Spirit does and talk about how does the Holy Spirit work today. So the question that I want to be at the forefront of our minds and our thoughts and our hearts is this. How does the Holy Spirit work in the life of the church? How does the Holy Spirit work in the life of the church? If you know theology, both in our circles and in broader circles, you know this is a pretty debated question, isn't it? How does the Spirit work today in the life of the church? We'll see how the Spirit works here in Acts 2. First of all, we'll see the Spirit descend In verses 1 through 3, the Spirit descends. Look with me at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Why were they all together in one place? Because Christ had told them to wait in Jerusalem. So at the end of Acts chapter 1, we see they're gathered together, they're praying, they're waiting for this promise from the Father. Now, what is Pentecost? And if you're like me, you probably have associated Pentecost with this event in Acts. But actually, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. It was something that they would celebrate 50 days after presenting the first sheaf of the Passover. It celebrated, sometimes it's called the Feast of Fruits, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of Weeks. It celebrated the harvest that God gave to Israel. And it recognized God's providence. Now, just think with me about this for a moment. Because we all know what happens in Acts 2 after the resurrection, after Christ rises from the dead. What is the first big event in the life of the church where we see thousands of souls saved? It is Pentecost. So I find it interesting. That little connection there, that this really is the first fruits of the gospel. This is really where we see thousands of souls saved through Christ. As we continue to look, look with me at verse 2. And suddenly, so these people are gathered together. What are they doing as they're gathered together? They're praying. And in verse 2 it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind so they're praying and all of a sudden they hear a mighty wind sound and it's very loud I had a roommate in college that uh, lived up in New York he was used to the mountains and one day you could hear the wind howling outside have you ever heard that before and he asked me said he looked really worried he's like what is that and I said it's the wind and he's like really the wind can do that and I said yeah of course we're in Iowa where the wind is you know 50 miles per hour every such way And he's not used to that because he's used to the mountains. This is a mighty rushing wind sound that it says fills the entire house where they were staying. Now, some people will make the point that this wasn't an actual rushing wind, but just a rushing wind sound. And I would say, well, if it's a rushing wind sound, is it possible that it could just be a rushing wind that made this sound Some other people will say, you know, it was something that looked like a fire, but it wasn't really a fire. And I'm like, well, fire looks like fire. So couldn't it just be tongues of fire that was on the apostle's head? We see when the spirit comes, this is a spirit descending. He descends and two physical signs appear. The first is this rushing wind that comes while they're praying. And the second are these tongues of fire. with me at verse 3. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Why were there tongues of fire? Well, we don't exactly know, but I imagine this large flame coming into the room and then dividing each person that was in there. A tongue means forked flame. It wasn't like an actual human tongue that was fire is just a forked flame that came down from heaven and was in this room these two physical signs pictured or symbolized the coming of the spirit and what i think is going on here is we actually start seeing the baptism of the spirit take place in the lives of believers this is the first rabbit trail i want to take us on this morning is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's something that is a little bit confusing within the life of the church. There's been some debate on this. 1 Corinthians 12:13 for in one spirit we notice the tense of the verb there were all baptized. The baptism of the spirit is the result of faith and regeneration in Christ and it leads to believers being immersed into the body of Christ. so the difference between the baptism of the spirit and and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in a few moments, is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit only occurs once in the life of a believer at salvation. It's different than baptism, like we have here, water baptism. And it's different than the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's actually predicted in Matthew 3. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. In these rabbit trails, we're going to kind of jump all over the place. As John is baptizing people, he says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit and with fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs once. It's one of the ministries of the Spirit. It occurs once in the life of a believer, entering them into the body of Christ. It's one of the many ministries of the Spirit. The Spirit baptizes, it seals us, guarantees our salvation, it indwells us, it fills us and controls us, it produces fruits, and it gives us spiritual gifts. I believe spirit baptism was first experienced here in Acts 2 at Pentecost. But don't worry, when you're spirit baptized, it doesn't mean that there's going to be a mighty rushing wind sound or tongues of fire. Those were just the physical signs that happened to the apostles at this time. Now, I want to talk about some misconceptions about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Like I said earlier, first of all, it's not the filling of the Spirit, Right. They're not the same thing. You can be filled with the Spirit or not filled with the Spirit as a believer, but you're only baptized in the Spirit once. It's not water baptism. Water baptism is a public profession of faith. It occurs after salvation where you're publicly telling others that you are a Christian, whereas a baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at your salvation Immersing you into the body of Christ. One more aspect we need to discuss, and that is that even though there's some physical signs sometimes associated with spirit baptism, we believe those signs have ceased today. So as the spirit descends, we see the spirit baptize believers into the body of Christ Notice with me, secondly, how the Spirit works. How does the Spirit work? Look with me at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So I believe they were baptized by the Holy Spirit earlier. And then they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens when they're filled with the Spirit? And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit... Gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit's working. They're filled with the Spirit and they start having these miraculous gifts. Now, what does it mean to speak in tongues? Well, if you read the text, I think you'll find that it meant for them to speak in different languages, to actually speak in another audible language that you didn't know before that time it'd be like if Tim came to church or Schaefer came to church they started speaking Spanish and they'd never learned Spanish before wouldn't that be an amazing thing notice how the crowds react to their speaking in tongues in verse five now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven Who are these devout men? Well, I think they were Jewish people. There were Jews dwelling in Jerusalem, it tells us. And then these devout men who were also Jews. So why is Luke telling us that there's more Jews dwelling? Because they're from every nation. This is why they needed to be able to speak in tongues. Because there were other ethnic Jews in Jerusalem during that time. Who needed to understand the gospel. Now, what was amazing was that most people back then spoke Greek or they spoke Aramaic. They were bilingual or trilingual, even if they had another language that they grew up with. So notice what happens to these people who had learned their own language previously, but who had probably learned Greek just to talk to other people in Rome. Look at verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Now, I went back and forth on what this sound actually was. In fact, I was at the Trafalgar Library typing my sermon on Thursday, and I typed this paragraph out like six different times, trying to figure out, okay, what actually is this sound? Because it could be the sound of the wind— or it could be the sound of them speaking in tongues. And I would argue that it's a sound of the wind for a couple different reasons. Mainly because of the word that's used for sound there that actually means wind. Secondly, because it would have been a pretty loud sound. It's a mighty rushing wind. It would have gotten people's attention. And then lastly, if you look at verse 6. It seems like they hear this sound, this mighty rushing wind. It draws them to this place, and then they notice people speaking in other tongues. But again, like I said, I went back and forth on this question actually a lot as I was typing it out, and I kind of flip-flopped my position on it. But it's not a super important answer. The real heart of what we're trying to get at is what did it mean for the disciples to speak in tongues? Well, based on their reaction, in verse 6, it says, The multitude came together, and they were what? They were bewildered. They were shocked. They were amazed. And why were they bewildered? Because they're hearing people speak in other languages. It says they were amazed and astonished. In verse 7. They're, they don't know what to do with themselves. They are utterly shocked by this. Why is that? Well, they said, aren't these who are speaking, the Galileans, aren't these Jewish people? These are people who clearly didn't know other languages. They were humble people. They were fishermen. How would they know how to speak in other languages? Now, there were around 120 people, Luke tells us, in the upper room during this time. So I don't think it was just the 12 apostles who were speaking in tongues, but I actually think there were way more people from that group of 120 that were speaking in other languages for people to understand. Look at verse 8. Not only were they able to speak in other languages, But the people who were living there were able to understand. It says in verse 8, And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? It'd be like if you came to church and you were Italian, but you just learned English to go here. And then all of a sudden, you heard me preaching to you in Italian. You would think that'd be really weird. Now I'm not going to start speaking in Italian, okay? But that'd be pretty strange, wouldn't it? In fact... In verses 9 through 11, we see a list of all the different nationalities that were represented there. In verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. And visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is what speaking in tongues actually meant in Acts 2. These people were speaking in other languages. Now let's talk about our second rabbit trail. And for that, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Because there's some debate here on whether or not Paul is talking about the same tongues as a, what is going on in Acts 2. He says in verse 1, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may what? That you may prophesy. He starts arguing that they should, if they're going to want a specific gift, they should want prophecy. Now, why would he say that? Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. What was the problem with the Corinthians? You know, the Corinthians got a lot wrong in the book of 1 Corinthians, right? What was their problem with speaking in tongues? They weren't trying to speak in other languages to share the gospel, but they were saying that they had a special language in which they could speak to God. And Paul's saying, if gifts are for the edification of the body of Christ, then shouldn't you want to pursue gifts that build up the body of Christ? Look at verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. He's saying, you people are babbling on like you're talking to God. No one else understands what you're saying. No one else understands what you're talking about but he utters mysteries in the spirit that was why they wanted to speak in tongues they thought they had the special ability to have higher knowledge or higher understanding of the mysteries of the spirit verse 3 on the other hand the one who prophesies speaks to people for the upbuilding and encouragement and consolation Verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up who? Himself. And really, Paul is centering in. He's talking about an issue that we even see within those who believe in speaking in tongues today. How does it edify the body of Christ if no one understands what you're saying? It's part of why I think tongues have ceased today and why there are no people who actually are speaking in tongues Look at verse 5. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Speaking in tongues had a purpose in the early church. But what was that purpose for? It was speaking in other languages so that the gospel could go out. Why do we not need that today in our churches? Because we have the ability to translate the Bible into so many different languages. We have the ability to reach people with the gospel without having to speak in tongues. And so I would encourage you to just, as we look at these ministries of the Spirit, there are certain ministries that we see in the book of Acts that I think were for this time period, but they're not necessarily for us today. Let's keep looking at Acts chapter 2. I want to next talk about how the Spirit convinces. We've seen the Spirit descend. And as the Spirit descends, he baptizes believers. We've seen the Spirit work. Believers are filled with the Spirit. And because they're filled with the Spirit, they start speaking in tongues for the purpose of what? Sharing the gospel with others. But I want to finally focus on this reaction to the message. I want us to see how the Spirit convinces Look at with me at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed. So both groups, everyone, all the people who are listening are shocked by this. You know, we would be too if people just started speaking in other languages that they didn't know. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What's going on here? This has gotten people's attention. And this was part of the point of why this happened. But others, in verse 13, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Really what we see here in Acts 2 is two responses to the gospel message. Now the people talking in verse 12 I don't think are necessarily saved yet. But they are at least receptive to the gospel. They're curious as to what is going on here with this speaking in tongues. They're wondering, what could this mean? And then next week's sermon, we'll see Peter preach the gospel to these people, share the gospel. And we'll see over 3,000 souls saved. The Spirit convinces them. The Spirit of God is working on their hearts But what happens to these people in Acts 2.13? They're not convinced. They said, these people must be drunk. They're filled with new wine. Doesn't that sound like something that someone would say today to the gospel, to God's word, to truth? Instead of accepting it, instead of believing it, they would rationalize it off. They would say, oh, they're just drunk. They're just crazy. The Holy Spirit is the one who works in salvation. I want to give you a little bit more proof of this. Turn to the end of chapter 2. After Peter gives this sermon, look with me at verse 47. As they're thankful, as they're thankful for what God has done. And bringing these souls to Christ, it says praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number those, day by day, those who are being saved. The Spirit of God is working in the hearts and lives of people to receive the gospel. I want to talk about, lastly, how does the Spirit of God work today? And to do that, let's turn first to Titus three five. First of all, we'll see how the Holy Spirit works in salvation. Titus three five. He saved us not by works of righteousness, or works done by us in righteousness, but according to what? His own mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. In salvation, the Spirit first of all regenerates us. He gives us new life. The Spirit of God is what enables us to be saved. He is what transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. He baptizes us, secondly. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Thirdly, he seals us. Look with me at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, look with me at verse 13. As Paul is talking about the blessings of God... In salvation, it says, In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth of the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were what? You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14. This Spirit, who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit seals us. How does the Spirit work in salvation? He regenerates us. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He seals us. How does he work in our sanctification? Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He indwells us. In verse 19, I lost my verse there for just a second. In verse 19, or do you not know that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit within you. You are not your own. We have the Spirit of God. He indwells us. He lives inside of us as believers look with me at well the second ministry would be he fills us we've talked about this in acts 2 the spirit of god fills believers Now i said this is different than the baptism of the spirit you can be filled with the spirit as it talks about in ephesians 5 it's a command be filled with the spirit or you can be not filled with the spirit it means to be controlled to be possessed now not like demon possession necessarily, but to be in God's will and used by God through the Holy Spirit. He causes us to bear fruit. Look with me at Galatians 5. Verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh Then he lists these desires of the flesh that we don't want to walk in. But the Spirit, when we walk with the Spirit, when we're filled with the Spirit, he causes us to bear fruit. Look at verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The Holy Spirit causes us to bear fruits. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 12. He gives us gifts. The Holy Spirit gifts believers. But like we talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, he gifts believers for service, for edification of the body of Christ. For sharing the gospel. Not to build ourselves up. Not to for pride. But he gives us gifts of the spirit. Look at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. But the same what? Spirit. And there are varieties of service. But the same Lord. The Holy Spirit gifts believers. He gives us spiritual gifts for the body of Christ. With me at 2 Corinthians 4, he illuminates God's word. This is one of my favorite ministries of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are, what? Perishing. They can't understand God's word. They can't understand the gospel verse 4 and this in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel skip ahead to verse 6 so unbelievers can't understand god's word they can't understand the gospel so how are they saved in verse 6 for god said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. The Holy Spirit allows us to understand God's word. Any understanding of this passage or any other passage that I preach does not come from myself, it doesn't come from seminary or college, it doesn't come from books, but any understanding that is accurate comes from the God's word, comes from the Holy Spirit's illuminating God's word, giving understanding. And then finally, the Holy Spirit comforts. The Holy Spirit comforts. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Holy Spirit is called what? The helper, the comforter. In verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction, with the comfort in which we ourselves are comforted by God. The Holy Spirit comforts us so that we can help comfort others who are going through hard and difficult times. This is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. So how do we respond to the work of the Holy Spirit as believers, as we've seen in this passage First of all, make sure you're baptized by the Holy Spirit. Make sure you've entered into the body of Christ. Secondly, read God's word. Follow God's will. That goes along with, thirdly, walk in the Spirit. While the Spirit works in our hearts and lives, while he convicts us, shows us our sin, it's also commanded that we walk in the Spirit. That you and I be filled with the Spirit. Well, what does that look like? It looks like say no to our flesh. Actually, when we say yes to the Spirit of God, He says walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of your flesh. Why can't I say no to my sin? Why do I struggle with this sin issue? It's because I'm not walking... In the spirit. Walk in the spirit. Fourthly, serve your church. Use the gifts God has given you for the edification, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then finally, share the gospel. Share the gospel with others. It's what we see going on here in Acts chapter 2. If I can take us back to our text, and I know we've jumped around quite a bit this morning how is the holy spirit working in these believers lives he's enabling them to share the gospel with others so that others can be taken from their sin and entered into the kingdom of god i hear many people say that we don't emphasize the holy spirit enough especially in baptist churches or bible churches And that may be true, but I want to emphasize the Spirit rightly. That's why we took time today to look at these different ministries and works of the Spirit so that we can emphasize what the Spirit actually does rightly, how the Spirit actually works in our lives. And why do we want to do that? Because I want to understand how the Spirit is working in my life so that I can become a better disciple of Christ. So my encouragement to you this morning is walk in the Spirit. Pray and ask God to convict you of sin and show you how you need to grow and change. Commit to using your gifts that the Spirit's given you to build up the body of Christ and to share the gospel with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that it is through the Holy Spirit that we can have a relationship with you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins on the cross. He's given us new life in him. God, I pray that we wouldn't take that lightly or for granted. God, help us all to walk in the spirit in times that are difficult, in times where we want to say yes to our flesh. Help us to say yes to the spirit. Help us to be fruitful Christians who bear the fruit of the Spirit, who fill this church with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the other fruit of the Spirit. God, help us to make disciples through your Spirit. We know that it's your Spirit who convinces people of their need for salvation. We know that it's your Spirit that draws people to yourself. So God, I pray that we'd be faithful to obey how your spirit moves in us and works in us each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.